Welcome, everybody. Thank you for braving the cold to come out. We are in Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and we're going through verse 9. Revelation 7, 1 through 9, where we read, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out the loud voice of the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Oh, lost my software again. Give me a second. Sorry. <clears throat> Do not harm the earth or sea or trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you for an opportunity to come together, to dive into your word, Lord, to hear you speak through your word, Lord, to see Jesus Christ as you reveal him to us in your word, God. So we just pray that we would see you tonight in a new way, God, that you would open our hearts to understand your word, that we may know you more, that we may love you more, Lord, that we may shine your light brighter in this world, God. We just want to know you. We praise you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, we saw the opening of the fifth and sixth seals. And when the sixth seal was opened, we saw symbolically the judgment of the wicked at Christ's return. And we saw based on Christ's explanation of his return in the Olivet Discourse that we looked at, that the resurrection and the rapture of the saints happened simultaneously with his return in judgment. We also saw that John's vision echoes some of Isaiah's prophecies that speak of God preserving his people through his judgment. And I said last week when we get into Revelation 7, we would see that preservation in the resurrection and the rapture, and we'll start to look at that tonight. But note, this is one of the pivotal passages in the book of Revelation for one's understanding of the book. A dispensational understanding of the book sees the book of Revelation as a literal description of the end times, which is a seven-year period between the rapture and the final judgment, including the resurrection of the saints, and that's what we call the tribulation or the great tribulation. This understanding also believes in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth following that seven-year period, at the start of which the righteous are resurrected, and at the end of which the reprobate are resurrected. And a large part of the understanding is that God will spend that seven-year period between the rapture and judgment, not just punishing the world, but focusing his salvation on physical Jews. They believe there will be a mass salvation of Jews in that time. Now, an amillennial understanding of the book of Revelation, what we're teaching here, sees the book as a symbolic description of a time between Christ's first and second comings, including both of his comings. Like we've already seen, the lamb slain, which is the first coming of Christ, is the one who can open the seals. And we see that the world sees the return of Christ, we saw this last week, and the unsaved hide from what they call in the vision the wrath of the lamb. That's the second coming we've already looked at. But we've seen, for the most part, elements in elements of life in the period between Christ's first and second comings. Now, this view does not believe in a literal seven-year gap between rapture and final judgment and resurrection, or a literal thousand-year period between the resurrection of the saints and the resurrection of the reprobate during which Christ reigns on earth. So that means that, according to that view, there can be no focus of God on saving physical Jews during that seven-year period. But the difference in these views is not just about the end times. 
It's about the entire history of redemption as revealed in the Bible. There are a host of other interpretive differences of the whole Bible. So one's view of the end times isn't just about the end times. It's about everything the Bible teaches. As an example, if my view, the amillennial view of the end times of the book of Revelation is wrong, then so is everything I've preached in the book of Galatians over the last five months. Now, I didn't plan for these things to coincide. It's just God's providence that this discussion of this chapter comes in the heels of an exposition of Galatians 3, where we saw Paul say, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And the reason I bring all this up is the passage the dispensationalists will point to in the book of Revelation to support their view that God will turn his focus to saving physical Jews in a seven-year tribulation period is the passage we're looking at tonight. So to start, I want to point out what we looked at last week. The sixth year was opened, and we saw the judgment of the wicked. And we saw that Christ spoke about this in the Olivet Discourse. This is what we saw in Matthew 24. Christ said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of a son of man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And we saw, when Jesus talks about the tribulation of those days, he's referring to these days, the days we're in. And we saw those signs of the heavenly bodies and the coming of a son where both judgment and rapture happen at the same time. Because we see the heavenly bodies cease to give their light. We saw it's a symbol of God uncreating his creation. We see the mourning of the tribes of the earth who are the lost. We see them, they see Christ coming in judgment. And then we see the gathering of the elect, which is the rapture, and it's all at the same time. Christ also spoke about this in some of his parables. For example, in Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your fields? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them with the bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. See, Jesus is telling them, God created man good. The enemy came and sowed sin among man, making them sinful. Now both saved and reprobate live together. And Christ says they'll be harvested together. In fact, he says, gather the weeds first. Or we go a little further in that same chapter, and we have another parable, where Christ says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And this is one of the few times in the Gospels that Jesus gives an explanation of one of his parables. And he says, so it will be, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, Christ doesn't say they're going to separate out the righteous and come back at some other point for the evil. No, the evil will be sorted out from the righteousness. It happens all at the same time. And this is what we see in the book of Revelation. Again, Revelation 6.12, we saw this last week. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, with the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So we see here what Christ spoke about in Matthew 24, the heavenly bodies ceasing to give their light, God uncreating his creation, and the mourning of the tribes of the earth, the weeds, or the evil, depending on the parable, the lost. We, they see Christ coming in judgment, and they're hiding from his face. And when is the gathering of the elect? When's the rapture happen? Well, we see in verse, in chapter, in verse 7, 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four quarters of the earth. So when do these events take place? We see the judgment of Christ coming, and then after this. After what? After what we just saw in Revelation 6. After Christ appears in judgment and the world sees him. And while, as it said repeatedly, the book of Revelation does not offer a chronological prediction of the end times or any time. It tells the same story over and over again. And while I said each subsequent seal of the scroll was not meant to be Next, chronologically, as in seal one happens, then seal two happens, then seal three happens. But here, we're looking at one seal, the sixth seal. And with each seal, we have the revelation of one particular aspect of reality between Christ's two comings. In other words, this seal is revealing one thing, and that is Christ's return to second coming. But, is that enough to understand what John describes in his one seal as a chronological description of that one event? No. But remember what Christ said in the parables. Remember what he describes in the Olivet Discourse. He talked about his appearing in judgment and the separation of the evil and the righteous. He talked about the angels gathering his elect from the four winds. Here in the sixth seal, we have his appearing in judgment, and then we have these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And notice that Christ said in Matthew 24 that his angels would gather the elect from the four winds, which as we've seen, it means the whole earth. Here, angels are standing at the four corners of the earth, and everyone dispensational, amillennial, everyone agrees this is what Christ is referring to. This is the rapture. This is the gathering of his elect he was talking about. But if you want to stick with the literalistic interpretation of dispensationalism, then we have to abandon our original timeline, right? Because Christ described judgment, then rapture. What we're seeing here is happening after this, that this being Christ coming in judgment. And that means, as we will see, if this chapter is teaching of God's mass salvation of physical Jews, then that has to happen after Christ comes in judgment. Now, if we follow the timeline according to a standard dispensational explanation, they will tell you, here's what happens. Rapture, seven-year tribulation, God pours out his wrath in the world and saves physical Jews. At the end of his seven years, Christ comes in judgment. The just who died are resurrected. Christ reigns for a thousand years. After that, the wicked are resurrected and thrown into eternal hellfire. Then God destroys the current world and makes a new heavens and a new earth. But, we follow a timeline based on what Jesus said in his parables, and in Matthew 24, and what we see in the sixth seal, we already have the judgment. We already have the uncreation of the earth. It's already begun before Christ even returns. He said to look for these things before he would come in Matthew 24. He said, when you see these things, know that he is near at the very gates. So, if the judgment, the rapture, the resurrection, the uncreation and recreation of the world, and Christ's second coming are all one big event then both what Christ said in his parables and in the Olivet Discourse and what John is seeing here all line up. And the reason I'm giving all this introduction to what we're looking at is we need to remember, what John is seeing in the book of Revelation, he is literally seeing, but it is symbolic of realities of the past, present, and or future here on earth. And that means it must align with the whole teaching of Scripture or our interpretation cannot be correct. So let's look at what he says here. 
Again, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. As we just saw, after John sees the judgment, he sees the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And that represents the angels that will gather God's elect from the whole earth that Jesus spoke about. And as we see prophecies in the Old Testament, we see this gathering of God's people in terms of his four corners of the earth. As one example, we have Isaiah 11, where he says, He will raise a signal for the nations, and I will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And like we've seen before, those such prophecies are in their immediate fulfillment about the judgment, preservation, and restoration of Israel through their captivity, the ultimate fulfillment is in the final judgment of the world and rapture of the church. Often, Israel in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophetic books, it's meant to be a type of the church. It points forward to the church. But this also happens in the New Testament. We'll see that there are comparisons made there, too. Revelation 7.1, once again, after, I, after this I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So notice here, these angels stand at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. What is this talking about? When we looked at the first four seals, we saw the four horsemen. We saw they represented the spread of the gospel, war, famine, and death. And when we considered them, we saw the descriptions of them point back to the prophecy of Zechariah. We looked at this a few weeks ago, Zechariah 6. Where Zechariah says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot, the black horses, goes towards the north country, the white ones go after them, the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now we won't go back over everything we saw here, but notice the four horsemen go out to the four winds of heaven. This is a reference to the whole of creation. Here in Revelation, we see that these angels of the four corners of the earth hold back the four winds of the earth. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And they hold them back, that the four winds we see here, might not blow on earth or on the sea or against any tree. So here, the four corners of the earth and the four winds of the earth both represent the whole earth. However, the four winds more specifically represent movement over the whole earth, like the movement of winds over the earth. But what does the movement represent here? Well, in Zechariah's vision, the movement is of the four horsemen, or the horses with the four chariots. Here, it is the four horsemen we saw in the first four seals. In other words, when Christ comes in judgment, the four horsemen will cease their work. The gospel will not be spread anymore. Once Christ comes in judgment, it will be too late to obey the commands of repent and believe. Once Christ comes in judgment, he will destroy the wicked and save the elect and end this current evil age. In the same way, neither war nor famine, notice the reference to trees here, nor death by these or pestilence or animals, everything we saw in the first four seals, none of these will exist anymore. These things will not destroy the wicked. Christ will. These things won't harm the elect because Christ will have completed their salvation. And the vision of the four angels of the four corners of the earth is exactly that. Christ sending his angels, we saw, to gather the elect, to consummate their salvation and glory, and to throw the reprobate into eternal punishment. And the vision continues. He says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, 
with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So another angel now enters the vision. It says he ascends from the rising of the sun. That means from the east, which in the Bible is usually the indication of salvation. That's why the temple faced east. It's where God's salvation would come from. And we see here this angel has the seal of the living God. And this seal is symbolic of God's grace. This is what the elect are sealed with. We get it through the Holy Spirit. And this is opposed to the mark of the beast that we'll see. See, whereas the world is defined by the world system, God's elect are defined by God's grace. And the idea of the seal here being that the difference between the two is visible, right? If I had a seal on my forehead, you would see it clearly when you look at me. So too, when people look at an unsaved person, how they talk, what they do, how they think, they will very clearly see the ways of the world. But when people look at a Christian, see what the Holy Spirit, then how we talk, what we do, how we think, people should clearly see the grace of God. And so we see here these angels, they have this power to unleash this harm on the world and are told not to do any harm until the elect are sealed. Don't harm the wheat with the weeds, as Jesus might say. So this sealing, this grace is not just what saves us from the punishment and power of sin. This is talking about our final salvation. The same grace of God will save us from the very presence of sin. This is why the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. And here, when you talk about the servants of God, this is a reference to Christians. The word here for servant is the same word used throughout the New Testament to refer to believers. Paul always starts his letters by referring to himself as a servant of God. He refers to other Christians by name, like Epaphras and Timothy, as servants of God. Peter, James, Jude refer to themselves as servants of God. Paul calls us to be servants of God, all using the same word. The book of Revelation starts out letting us know it was written by John, the servant of God, to the church, the servants of God, right? Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Christ himself, we saw, calls the Christians in Thyatira, Gentile believers, his servants. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So when the angel with the seal of God, says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The servants of God are believers. This is the church. This is those who are sealed by grace and will not be punished along with the wicked. And this is where we need to understand the symbolism of this part of the vision. Verse 4, John says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, Nephtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. Now, this is not referring to national Jews. This is referring to Christians, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, again, think of what we've already seen in our Galatians series. Think of what we've seen, not only there, but here in a Revelation study about what Paul reveals in the letter to the Ephesians. Think about what we've seen there and here that Paul talks about in Romans 9. And in case you need a reminder, believers are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Jesus is the promised physical offspring of Abraham. 
Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And that means, according to Paul, that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And Paul goes a little deeper with this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And he says later, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant of promise, having the hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility. And... When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And in case anyone wanted to object to anything Paul said, he tells us in Romans 9, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The New Testament very clearly teaches that in Christ there is one people of God. As we've seen, Paul tells us this was the mystery that was revealed in Christ, even though it was always true. It wasn't clear, but it was always true. And he tells the Galatian churches, as we've seen this, 20 different ways. So, if you want to say, just based on this passage in Revelation, that God at some point in history future deals with physical Israel differently than he does the church, then we're saying that at some point in the future, God is going to change what he has always done and change what he has always planned. So either that's what the book of Revelation is teaching us, or this is symbolic of something else. Revelation 7.4, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. In addition, if this is not talking about the church, then we have to say the servants that we were talked about in verse 3 are different than everywhere else in the New Testament. When he says, when the angel says, do not harm the earth and the sea of the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So you see, this is why your view of the end times in the book of Revelation does not, it doesn't just decide what your doctrine is of the end times. It will decide your doctrine of the church. It will decide your doctrine of salvation. And it will ultimately decide your doctrine of God. If those being sealed then are Christians, and this isn't physical Israel, the question then is, why does John see this in his vision, right? Why does John see Israel being sealed? My first answer is that he doesn't. Note what John says. And I heard the number of the sealed, 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. John makes a point of telling you, he didn't see this, he heard this. Is that a small detail? Am I just splitting hairs here to prove my own point, making way too much of a, a single word? I don't think so. Let's look at the passage as a whole here. He says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So nobody says here, John hears of the sealing of those from every tribe of Israel, and then after that, looks and sees a great multitude from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Those he hears about and those he sees are the same people. But notice a few other things. If this is literally Israel and not symbolic, if I'm wrong here, well, there was a mistake. Because this is not literally every tribe of Israel. The tribe of Dan is missing. And the dispensationalists have a few different theories on that to explain it away, none of which are literally supported in the Bible. See, the literal goes out the window a bunch of places pretty quickly for a dispensationalist. And notice that if this is literal, and it's speaking of the salvation of Jews, which it also doesn't literally say, okay, the word salvation is not here, but let's say it's talking about Jews, there are only 144,000 Jews saved here. There are, right now, if Jesus came tonight, there are 15.2 million Jews in the world, but you have to say God saves only 144,000. But the 144,000 is not literal. Remember what we've seen with numbers in the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, numbers like 3 and 7 and 10, all represent completeness and perfection. There's another number, another number that repeats in the Bible in a significant way. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 12 apostles. Jesus did not choose 12 apostles by accident. Like we've seen, the 24 elders are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. They symbolize Old Testament and New Testament saints together, the whole of the elect. And the number 12, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, primarily represent those chosen of God. God literally chooses the children through which the promise will pass from Abraham, right? He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. And then you have the 12 tribes, which are Jacob's sons. Then we're told in the New Testament explicitly that Christ chose 12 apostles. He had other disciples. More than 12 followed him. He chose 12 to represent the spiritual Israel of the New Covenant. So when we get to the 144,000, the 144 of that represents all of the chosen. 12 times 12, 144. Then you have the 1,000, either 10 you know, to the third or a thousand, but it shows ultimate completeness. So this 144,000 is just another representation of the elect of all time. It's the same thing that the elders represent. And that becomes evident when we read that John heard of the 144,000 and looks and sees the elect of all time. Again, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Again, the 144,000 is symbolic, and Israel is symbolic. But there's more. Because in addition to what we've already looked at from the New Testament that absolutely excludes any difference between saved Jews and saved Gentiles, 
There are direct comparisons made between the church and the chosen of God in the Old Testament. Like when we are told, like Isaac, the child of promise, now you brothers, Paul says, like Isaac, are children of promise. Or when we are directly called the circumcision. When Paul says in Philippians, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Or, in any of the many places that we are grouped in with physical Jews, as the spiritual officer of Abraham, like in Galatians we've seen, he also does it in Romans. Romans 4.16. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Or, as we'll see at the end of the book of Galatians, we, the church, are just called Israel. Paul ends, and it is for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So it's not out of the ordinary for the New Testament to equate Israel with the church. And when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, and we see a description of the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, we are given the symbol of the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, and that is a symbol of the church. This is the bride of Christ. Revelation 21, we'll see, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then we're given some details of this city. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the, at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, we're going to see the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles symbolizing the whole church. But there's more. We get a physical description of the New Jerusalem. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. It's a cube. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. We see all the same numeric representations of the church in eternity as we see here in Revelation 7 at the rapture. And I heard the number of the seal, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000, and he lists all the tribes. But there's more. Because the idea of sealing God's people to protect them through his judgment would not have been a new idea to those reading this vision. This has already happened. They knew this from somewhere. It's from the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel has a vision in which God commands an angel to seal the faithful remnant of Israel that they would not be judged along with the rest of Israel. And we read. Then he cried in my ears a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of a city, each with his destroying weapon in his hands. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hands. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. 
And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. You see here, God tells his angels, seal the elect, judge everyone else. And realize, when Ezekiel has this vision, this is already during the Babylonian captivity. So this would have been something still future for where Ezekiel stood. And in the very next chapter, we have a very famous vision of Ezekiel where the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, which had already been destroyed by the time he sees this vision. So we have God making a difference here between physical Israel and his spiritual people. Believers will be sealed and spared. Everyone else is judged. And of course, Ezekiel prophesies later in his book of a new temple, which, as we'll see much later in our study, represents Christ. In other words, Ezekiel prophesies of a time where God makes no distinction between physical Israel and anybody else, but only between believers and unbelievers. And in fact, after the captivity, if you know the history, the presence of the Lord does not return to the temple. It does not return to Israel until it does in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we know then, some of the Jews believe, and they become the church. But many of them do not believe, and they are judged, and they are spread to the four winds of the earth. After 70 AD, when Jerusalem and the Second Temple were destroyed, which Christ predicted in the Olivet Discourse, the Jews were literally scattered throughout the world. And I'm going to give this just as an interesting tidbit here. Here is part of Josephus' account of the siege of Jerusalem. We're in chapter 5 of his wars. This is verse 297. A certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared, I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For, before sun setting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. Moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of a temple, as their custom was, to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. But what is still more terrible, there was one Jesus, not our Jesus, a different guy, Jesus, the son of Ananus, a plebeian and a husbandman, who four years before the war began, and at a time when the city was in a very great peace and prosperity, came to that feast, whereon it is our custom for everyone to make tabernacles to God in the temple, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, he began on a sudden cry aloud, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds a voice against Jerusalem and the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides, and a voice against this whole people. I just find it very interesting that eyewitnesses, this was written probably about 90 AD, eyewitnesses saw men in the clouds, felt an earthquake, heard the sound of a great multitude, speaking of being removed from this, and that this supposed prophet spoke of destruction coming from the four winds against Israel. Now, if this is true, if he got this on, you know, good authority here. It may be that God prefigured the final judgment and rapture of his one true spiritual people when he destroyed the physical people. What we do know is that he destroyed his physical people and sent them to the four winds of the earth. We need to realize God speaks through history as well as the Bible if we're willing to listen. What's the point? Well, when Christ came in space and time, the wall between physical Jews and Gentiles was destroyed. It was revealed in Christ that there are and only ever have been one true people of God. And God makes no distinction based on physical lineage. The physical Jews do not hold a special place in God's plan. 
And this is not just what the New Testament tells us, this is what history tells us. So when John hears this, and I heard a number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel, and sees this, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, he's describing the same thing. This is the elect of God, the church, regardless of nation or language or any of that sealed and protected from judgment and brought into the very presence of God. And as we will see, this here that he's seeing, both the 144,000 of Israel and this multitude that he's seeing before God, this is a picture of the raptured and resurrected saints of all time in our glorified bodies in the presence of Jesus Christ. We will stand in his presence with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We will stand in his presence with the literal 12 sons of Jacob. We will stand in his presence with the 12 apostles. We will stand in Christ's presence with all those dear brothers and sisters we've lost to physical death and with every saint who ever has or ever will believe. This is what John is seeing. 